a all championship teams when they win championships have somebody calling the plays and that person certainly doesn't win that battle alone but they're the person who schematically orchestrates a game plan to victory and our guest is no different but in a different line of work he called the plays and set up the pieces to the capture of one of i don't know the last centuries uh one of the last centuries most wanted terrorists ever uh and he's got a remarkable story so you guys need to dig in and my my guest today i'm proud to say is a childhood friend of mine eric maddox who was an army ranger uh chinese mandarin linguist He's done over 2,700 uh, interrogations. Uh, he did 300 interrogations uh, when he was over helping fight this battle, this global war on terrorism. He's been deployed, what, like seven, eight times? Eight times. Eight times. Eight times. Uh, and, and this guy has a story. Uh, and I want you to go buy his book, and we'll talk about that later, so we won't be able to dig into every step of the capture of Saddam Hussein. But I want Eric to somehow go through some of the high points and just some of the things that he had to key in on as a and just skill set that he built through this. But formally, I want to welcome my friend Eric Maddox to the show. Thank you, John. Brother, it's good to have you again. I know we talked back uh, day after Christmas, I guess, uh, last mm -hmm. year. And uh, man, I, a lot of wheels have turned. A lot of things have developed. Uh, a lot of things are going on overseas, as you know. And uh, man, do you have anything just off the top that you can just give me a take on what you think about the country situation, just as where we're going as a people and a culture here? And then what's your perspective on just kind of a 20,000 foot view of what's happening now over in Afghanistan, that whole picture. So let's start with Afghanistan. So it's two great questions, John. So I did three tours in Afghanistan. The one thing that I will just really say there are, you know, usually there's two sides to a story. There are 20 different sides to the story. And I'm not talking about the withdrawal. I think that was done horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. But we can also look at the withdrawal and say, as wrong as we did it, can you imagine being one of those service members who was in that airport and the execution of the, the, the mass exodus of so many people? So one of the things, we, just, we have to look things at perspective. But I will say my biggest concern with the war in Afghanistan, we were there for 20 years. You ask any seasoned intelligence officer, an interrogator, somebody who really spent some time there. We've known since I, you know, my second tour in the middle of 2009, it was very clear. The Afghan National Army was an absolute disaster. It was never going to change. And the moment we left, it was going to collapse. So it's really just disappointing that it takes so many years following that. And there's a lot of different administrations, a lot of leaders who can, who have to answer that call. But the fact that this plan has been a failure since over a decade, I think the people, right? Cause this country needs to be led by the citizens, not the government. The government's not the leaders of this country. Mm -hmm. They work for us that we have a right to go. 
where was this miscommunicated? Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a misunderstanding from the current administration. Oh, they're going to stick around and, and fight a little bit. Yeah, they were wrong. They were wrong. Mm-hmm. But this has been a known thing for 10 or 12 years. And if we're going to get better, which is really why we should go back, we shouldn't go back and critique so we can, you know, just tell people how bad they were. If we're going to get better, if we're going to improve and learn from our mistakes, mm-hmm. we, we sh- I believe we should really start there. 20,000 feet looking at our culture. Um, thank God, God is God, because I, I, I always feel just, you know, kind of now raising children, being in my late 40s, I feel like, oh my goodness, this has got to be the worst time ever. And then you kind of go back into the 50s and 40s and whatever, and they felt the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's just, well, maybe this is just a fallen world and that's just the way it's going to be. And then we've, we've got to believe and we got to stay positive and we got to find the positive and that's really all we can do. Yeah. I mean, we know how it ends. I mean, you and I and, and believers, followers of Jesus Christ know, know how this ends. And, and this is all, I guess, probably not, not probably not a surprise to, to God, but this is all kind of playing out how, we as believers, I, you know, kind of thought it might get to this point of just complete chaos and uh, not that it can't turn a corner. And I believe, like you said, it takes us as citizens to help it turn the corner and, and some of the fallout from Afghanistan, the most recent things in Afghanistan that have happened, the withdrawal, you know, some of the fallout here has been uh, noticeable. Clearly everybody's got a side of the aisle and everybody's got a finger to point. And so I don't, I don't know that that gets the ball down the court at all, but right. uh, you know, you know, talk about, so your time, I can't not talk about it. Cause you know, I've listened to you do interviews before and, and I hear the story over and over and it, it never gets old. So man, what are you most proud of in that leading those teams? That's the spec ops teams that you led and all the interrogations you did and just partnering with so many pieces that were moving. Right. And you're the, the deck of cards that you had to track all these different people, man, what are you most proud of, of that whole process? So that's probably the best question. I think you should ask anybody on your podcast, ask them that question, right? You can also ask them, what are you most disappointed or what what are you least proud of? But what I'm most proud of, you know, you started this by saying any team has a coach and they call the plays. And I just feel like going, I'm fact checking you, John. I wasn't the coach of that team. I was, there was a Delta force commander I worked for and everyone knew who was boss. And I will say he was yeah. a sp- soft-spoken boss and he led, I'd like, I'd, I'd follow that man to the sun, but I wasn't in charge of anything. I was a yeah. staff sergeant. Yeah. I was on a team of Delta force operators that all outranked me, but they were Delta force and I was an interrogator, right? Let's be very clear. You got levels in the military mm-hmm. and they're way up here. And somewhere down here, you have the interrogators. And my biggest challenge every time I go on a deployment, whether it's with Delta Force or the Rangers, it's you are putting these individuals out on that battlefield based on your information, based on prisoners who initially mm-hmm. when they met you were liars and didn't want to talk to you and certainly didn't want to help you. And the constant failures that we faced and particularly my intelligence faced in tracking down Saddam, knowing every time that there was a level of disappointment, sometimes even just outward anger of this team every single time. And it would have been really easy 
to just go, just blend in, just, just be like every other soldier, just do your job. Right. But, but for me, what I'm most proud of is said, your job is to try to do your best. And if you fail, you fail. That's fine. If I go and fall flat on my face and that says, this wasn't about you. This was about the mission because I love my story of tracking down Saddam, but people say, what was your best day in Iraq? And you know, my story, we found Saddam the day I left. Matter of fact, I was leaving the country. They went tracking down people say, what was your best day in Iraq? And I tell them, I, I didn't have a good day in Iraq. <laughs> the day, the day after I left was awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that it failure, it's not about what anybody else thinks. It's in your heart. Did you give everything you could? And, and I can live with that. And that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah. And I will say, and we might have to agree to disagree because I, I'm going to argue that you were at the very least the offensive coordinator. Because I, I know that. that some you give me that one. Okay. So I'll yeah, give you offensive coordinator and I started the team as the water boy. So I will hundred percent accept that. There you go. Well, I can tell you right now, I I did read the book. I've listened to the story several times. And yeah, you don't really have a, a win like that, a victory to that degree <laughs> without failing some along the way. And and so I know you talk a lot about some of the I don't know if you call it miscues, but just kind of information that turned out to be bogus or, you know, maybe we, we tracked down the wrong rabbit trail in this one, but Hey, let's go get it again. You know, but I, I love the fact that, I mean, it says you did 300 interrogations over there in that process, in that whole journey. And I mean, you had to get some good information at some point and, and, but we got, I know we got some bad information as well, but man, you, what about yourself did you learn most through that process? What did you learn about Eric Maddox that maybe surprised you or that you didn't know already about yourself? Um, I learned something that I had learned a little bit early in the military. And that was how to get off the bench, mm. right? How to get off the sidelines. So one of the early lessons I learned in the army is I went to ranger school. Right. I want to be clear. People say he's an he's Army Ranger. I'm a graduate of Ranger School. You don't know the difference, John. Veteran, you know, Army veterans on your show. They don't know the difference. So let's get our facts straight. So I was a graduate Ranger. I went to Ranger School. I recycled three times. I mean, I, I failed. Yep. Yep. Failed and failed. And I realized what I was trying to do in Ranger School was do exactly what they told me. Work really hard. But what I wasn't doing was engaging my brain and saying, how do you complete this mission? How do I inspire? What are the ideas? How to be creative? How to be an entrepreneur in ranger school, right? Because being a great soldier, people think being a military, a great soldier is about punctuality, waking up at five in the morning, dress right, dress. No, no, no. Great soldiers are problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And I had to identify some problems that I just didn't know how to solve because I didn't want to get off the bench. I was like, just blend in. And so when I was in Iraq, everyone said, this is the way you do interrogations. Oh, by the way, Saddam Hussein, we have all the greatest analysts in the world. He's not in his hometown of Tikrit. And about a month into that tour, I realized it's time for you to get off the bench, man. You've never been to war before. You've never done interrogations before. Get in the game. 
Now, I don't care what anybody else says. Mm -hmm. If you know something can be done better and you know it's got to be done different and you're the only one that knows, then you got to step up. Maybe you're going to make yourself look like an idiot, but you are going to step out there. For me, that was a journey that really the military taught me. But in that situation, that's what I most learned about myself. Yeah, you had to color outside the lines a little bit uh, just from a tactical standpoint and strategy. I mean, you had to be, like you said, you had to swim upstream. Like if you would have just gone with the current, right? You had to really jump outside the lines a little. And 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 it sounds like, you know, you could have very easily got sucked into that vacuum of insanity where you keep doing the same thing and they expected something different to happen and they did and nothing happened, right? So you come up with this. I don't even know. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you, how did you come up with this? Because we're not built to be empathetic, like as people, I don't think we're wired like that. You had to learn this trait. You had to learn, okay, this is going to be my different way of going about interrogations. How did you come up with getting that far outside the box? Cause let's be honest, that didn't fit the mold. Did it not? No, it didn't. So, you know, the goal, if you think about what's the goal of interrogations, it needs to be gather as efficiently gather useful intelligence and deliver it to the individuals on the battlefield who need it, right? That's the goal. Mm -hmm. The training, the path to that goal, everything we'd received in training said, with conviction and authority, you're going to convince this prisoner that you're in charge. They're no longer going to lie to you. And they're almost scared into having to go along with your plan. Well, thinking of that thing of insanity, I first month I realized this doesn't work. Yeah. And I knew it would. I, John, I almost flunked interrogation school. I'm, a, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I say it with a badge on her now. Mm -hmm. The things that I was taught in interrogation, I remember thinking, if I'm a prisoner, that wouldn't work on me. You can't scare me enough, right? Which, what does that Sounds lead to? Torture, yeah. mistreatment. So it's always like, well, now you got to really scare him. And I thought, how do you get inside of my head? How does that work? And I realized cooperation is somebody taking a chance with their resources, meaning their information, because they trust you. And I said, well, there's no way I can make this prisoner trust me. We just blew down the front door of his house and pulled him off the battlefield. Now he's a prisoner. He can't try. I have no credibility for trust. Yeah. I said, but trust is based on understanding. And I cannot understand this man because I'm not Iraqi, not a prisoner. I don't know what it means to be him, but the demonstration of seeking to understand is what I've discovered in any partnership is the most powerful force to gain trust, seeking to understand. It's all I do. Yeah. It's all I do in interrogation. I demonstrate that I'm seeking to understand them, not agreeing, not sympathizing, not being passionate or compassionate, simply seeking to understand them. And it's this magical power that makes them go, I'll check you. All right, Mr. Interrogator. Let me see what we what we can work together. And mm. I take it from there. Mm. Well, I mean, I can, I can only imagine there are of, of the 300 you interrogated, probably not all of them are idiots. Some of them might actually be fairly intelligent. And so for you to fake it through 300 interrogations seems like an impossibility for you to be effective. So how did, I mean, you had to tap into like genuine interest didn't you have to, I mean, you literally had to be interested in what they were saying because they could spot a fake 
from a mile away, I would think. I mean, you, you had to tap into a different side of yourself. Am I right? Well, but I was interested. Right. I mean, I wasn't interested in their kids. Yeah. I think it's hysterical when an interrogator sits with a prisoner yeah. and says, tell me about your family. They're like, man, I got bigger fish to Red fry flag. right now. I'm in yeah. jail. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah, if they were home on the block, maybe they'd want to talk about their kids. We have the same interest. Yeah. They want to go home. They want to go home. And nobody suspect that they provide information, right. which puts their entire families in danger. And I want information. So, John, we have these two goals. I want accurate information. They want to go home and there's no uh, ramifications of providing that information. So what I explained to them is that I don't really care about you. My boss doesn't like you right now, but he can like you. See, he thinks you're against us. And all I need to demonstrate to him is that you don't really care about those people. They forced you in. Yeah. And that how do we get what my boss needs to demonstrate he likes you? And how do I do it in a secretive way right. that nobody figures that out? Right. And they very clearly go, well, I can't take you to this person because they'll know it's me. But I can take you over here and no one will know. And I don't like that guy anyway. He upset me when I was a teenager. I don't, right? Yeah. Because people think, well, aren't they so loyal to the cause? These were Saddam Hussein's most loyal people. Yeah. And that's the other thing I hope everybody hears me when I say this. I don't care what side you're on. There's no Luke Skywalker and there's no Darth Vader. People are people. We're all bad and we all have some good in us. I don't care. I'm sorry if we can look and say that person killed my family member. That person killed somebody I love. Mm -hmm. I understand that. We kill them. They kill us. That doesn't make us any better or worse than them. So what you have to realize is they are human. You just got to find the human side of them as fast as possible. And believe it or not, John, it takes about 15 minutes. Mm, mm, 15 minutes. Okay. Well, so you've, you've got me figured out already. We've been doing this for like 16. So you're, you've got me figured out. Uh, no, so you, you, you can't come across with an agenda that's going to, uh, be harmful to them, I guess, is a, is a bad way to say it. But I, when did you kind of, was there, I know there wasn't one moment you can pinpoint, but there had to be kind of a transition period within yourself where you're like, I think I figured this out. Like, I think I figured out a new way of doing, doing business. And I think that I'm locked in to a, a philosophy. Uh, I've got the algorithm. So did you come across, did you, I mean, was there like a, I know there wasn't a one thing you can come up with, but you know what I'm saying? What, how did you, when did you realize, Oh dude, I'm onto something here with this tactic, with this philosophy. So the, the, the eye opener, right. I keep running into this wall of unsuccess based on what the army taught me, how to interrogate. Mm -hmm. And then I started to realize, wait a second, if I can have conversations and get prisoners at least talking to me and really dial in, I, John, I could figure out when they were lying, right? And I thought that was awesome. I can mm -hmm. talk to a prisoner, figure out the three or four places they lied. I'm going to hold that against them. Mm. So this prisoner sits down. I'm it's three weeks into Iraq in 2003. He says, Eric, I'm innocent. You got to let me go. I said, I'm going to make a deal with you. If you do not tell me a single lie, I'm going to let you walk out that door. I said, but if you lie to me, you spend the rest of your life in this prison. He says, 
deal. John, I talked to him for a couple hours, caught him in a, identified a couple areas. I thought he was being deceptive. Right in the middle of the interrogation, I said, how many brothers do you have? The prisoner said, I have three. I said, you have four. And the prisoner's jaw drops, right? And he's freaked out. He's kind of shaking. And I said, what was our deal? What was the deal we just cut? He's still shaking. He looks at me and he said, can we cut a new deal? Yeah. And I said, yeah, here's the new deal. You're going to tell me every single thing you know. And John, he looks at me and he said, I can't. He said, you don't get me. And you don't want to get me. It was at that moment I realized he's right. I can listen. I can come up with all these tricks. I'm not even trying to get him. It's that moment I said, what does that mean? How do you get somebody? How do you listen to understand somebody? Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I said, communication. It's not about the transfer of information. It's not giving information to influence. It's not gathering information so I can make better decisions. Information is about getting someone to build the highest level of trust. That changed the whole way I see all conversations, and it has for the rest of my life. Translates, doesn't it? Translates into everything. Uh, translates into relationships, business, whatever. I mean, there's there's a reason that you're, you know, you've been going around through to all these businesses throughout the country, the world, even, and and explaining this concept, which shouldn't be an aha moment for everybody. Like it shouldn't be this rocket science, but the way that you say it and people examine it and they, they realize they're not doing it regardless of whether they know it to be a, a an effective method, they're just not doing it. So I, I think it's amazing that you've been able to translate that, man. I want to maybe digress a little and just ask you real quick, because in the light of September in light of the anniversary last week, I'm going to, you know, 9-11, 2001, where were you? Where, how do you remember that day? What's to the best of your, you know, I'm sure you remember it pretty well. So where were you? I was in the army. Yeah. I had been in the army for seven years. I had started off, you know, as an infantry guy from 94 to 97, and then became a Chinese Mandarin linguist interrogator. Well, when you become a Chinese Mandarin linguist, you're never going to do interrogations, I thought. And so before we went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, mm -hmm. I was an intelligence collection officer for the United States military against the Chinese government, Chinese military. I was stationed in Los Angeles, California, and I was responsible for interviewing, hitting up Chinese scientists and researchers along the West Coast. I was in Los Angeles. So when the towers were attacked, it was six o'clock in the morning, California time. I'm getting up, getting out and going and doing PT. When I go get my buddy, he's like, Man, I think you need to turn on the TV here. Come on inside. And so we stopped what we were doing. We're driving to our office, right? We're an intelligence collection office. By the time we got to our office, the towers were down. Mm. And it's an entire room full of intelligence specialists, most of which spoke different languages around the world. And I remember all of this kind of thinking, you know, eventually... We're going to get dialed in on this. Now it's radical Islamic terrorism is going to be our focus. And that's exactly what happened. So yeah. I was heartbroken, devastated, 
just like the rest of the world. And even though I was an intel in the military, it was just shocking. I had no idea what was going to happen. I just knew my mission was probably going to change. Yeah, I was getting ready to say, you you probably had a decent idea that your your life and your mission was going to change being in the work you were doing. And we had to gather information and, you know, who better than maybe to start with you guys. But um, yeah, so uh, 20 years later, right, you... We kind of talked about it a little bit, but how's your perspective changed just on the whole, the 20 year war, the, the, the entire situation, like how is your perspective or how is your, I don't know if you were strat, you know, strategizing what's the next move, you know, what's Eric Maddox, if he's getting a phone call from, from the powers that be, what's, what's Eric Maddox guidance on the next move for, for us. I think we have to not look at how the attacks occurred in 2001 and say, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. I think what we need to see is the advancement of technology, right? We're able to track these terrorists a lot easier than we were before. Yeah. Tracking cell phones, our ability to see the entire globe, you, me, not just top secret Intel technology. You can see the entire globe, right? So where is the attack going to come from? Because it's going to happen. Now, whether or not they're successful enough to make a 9-11 attack, I, I don't know how they will. Right. But I think we, we need to see the approach and not go to two decades ago and say, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. Right? Okay. We locked the door in the cockpits. All right. Good. Yeah. But now we've got to look forward and go, what is the next attack? Where, where is that going to happen? How do we deal with the fact that we don't want to take away Americans' freedoms, the, the right to communicate and take away, you know, mm-hmm. make this a big brother scenario? But what does it look like? I will tell you, my biggest concern is radical terrorism coming from within the United States from U.S. citizens. Mm. It's very concerning. I don't care what country it is. I don't even care what. It's not a religious thing. It's not, oh, Middle Eastern refugees, they turn it. No. If somebody is kicked out of their country and gets relocated in another country, it's hard to assimilate. And they'll try to do it. But when their children come up, if they do not feel connected and they turn to that young adult age, those young men. Right. They've got to have a purpose. They've got to have a team. They've got to have a, a unifying group and they can't find it. And there's a level of anger and they can, they can get told a cause you have, you've got baby snakes, right? Wow. Because they're more poisonous. They're more right. aggressive. They're actually more courageous and they will die for their cause. So it's those things that are concerning. So when we remove 150,000 yeah. we have to say, that needed to be done. They helped us. But when they come into whatever country they go into, when their children get older, are we prepared to assimilate them? Because if not, they're going to join some gang. And those gangs can really be problematic. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't even know how they're going to wrap their arms around where all those folks are and what they're, you know, years from now. Or I, you're saying that that could be a, a process and, and, and it could be years from now when that happens. But, 
yeah, that's a concern. I think that's on everybody's radar. Um, man. So I knew you growing up, right? We, we knew each other, played baseball together, middle infield, probably to today, the best middle infield to ever come through small high school. I don't know. That's just, that's somewhere in a record book somewhere. Uh, be right. Right. So I, you know, I know, and growing up through your, you know, uh, through childhood and things, did how did the military, aside from just the way that you interact relationally and gaining trust from people, which is what you're a professional at doing, how did the military shape you and certain disciplines, certain characteristics within you that maybe you didn't have before, like that, that you can really attribute to the military? Anything out there like stand as, as some of your strong foundational pillars as a person that, that you developed along the way in the military? So great question. You know, the military, it's funny. People, my, my mother, you know, my mom, mm -hmm. whenever there's a troubled youth or something in our hometown of Sepulpa, she says, I think they should join the military. They should go into the army. I'm like, this isn't a rehab center. Sure. Why do we want the junk? Give us the good kids, right? Go. Give us the best. Because what the military doesn't do, it doesn't create these left and right limits that are so strict that you can't make mistakes, hmm. right? The military is going to let you fail. The military is going to give you just enough leash. But at a young age, they give high accountability. You look at some of these young Marines, they have a 19-year-old corporal. I mean, these guys, or Lance Corporal, whatever their rank is, right? These guys are in charge of other Marines' lives. They're leading these missions, and they're young. And, you know, I, this certainly isn't a bash on, on our education system and certainly our higher education system, but... I'm like, wait a second. I went to the University of Oklahoma. I graduated there. I was there four years. I did everything I was supposed to do. I learned 10 times as much in one year in the military than I would ever learn in a book, in a class with a professor. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was go live life, right? It's how it shaped me. It said, go out there, get on the edge of the cliff and live life. Go fail, go try something, go be challenged and go be accountable. And there are no excuses, right? That is everything I completely attribute to my time in the military. Yeah. And, and good leaders, or I would even say great leaders probably learned as much by not knowing not what not to do based on their past mistakes and then became great leaders because of how bad they did it right so i mean i think it's awesome that the military and, and i don't know how we ever get to a point where we can do that in civilian world and and throw people out there get your hands dirty we got somebody over here who knows how to bail you out really uh if you need it um but like in the military we you know we we throw them out right we throw them in the deep end and maybe they swim maybe they don't but we got somebody there to yank them up if they don't I don't know where, what's, what's a perfect world for you here? Like for, uh, aside from college, like you said, college doesn't cover a, a speck of that. Uh, so what do you, what do you do here? If you, you got guys that you want to train up and you want them to get, make great leaders. How do you make a great leader nowadays? What do you do with them? I believe in apprenticeships, right? I believe 
that we, as, as a leader, right? I hired a young man who is my producer and my videographer. He's with me all the time, right? He does mm. all my production. He's part of my creativity team. Now he graduated with a college degree. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back and get his money back. Mm. I do. I'm like, man, you go get all your hundred and whatever thousand dollars. But we're shaping this together. He can fail and succeed and fail and succeed. And what I'm learning is like, wow, the more I let him try, the more the more growth he has, right? And I'm like, yeah. wait a second. Are we sure we need to be spending all this money? I'm not saying it's not useful, but I've been there. I didn't, it, the, the juice was not worth the squeeze. Right. And I just think as a company, what does that piece of paper give us? Right. Other than some sort of expectations of entitlement of a certain salary. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I want somebody that comes in here and they want to learn. They're willing to change. They're willing to fail. I'm going to create them without what we need out of them. And that's exactly what the military does. Yep. So I'm like, who's, who's legitimized this institution Yeah. that says this is where I'm not, I did not come on your show to bash colleges. Right. Well, my whole family's in education. I know we're not, we're not bashing education. I get it. But no, I agree with what you're saying because it, well, we've bought into this whole and, and we've, we've created this model that, I mean, nobody's willing to step out and break the mold really. So all that piece of paper says to them is, Hey, we, we know, you know how to pull all nighters, right. And cram for tests and get information in your head that you're never going to you know, use again, or be able to recall a week later. We get it. So that's what the picture piece of paper says. <laughs> no, I, I think apprenticeship, I mean, I know apprenticeship's not a, a novel idea. I mean, I know it's been around, but I think it needs to be more widespread. I think it could start even before college age almost, but um, at, you know, as we, go through here, you know, I, I know you, you're, you're very analytical. I know you're, you're very into facts. Like you have to be, um, man, looking back on your journey, right? So you've done a lot. You, I mean, you were part of, I know you don't ever give yourself the credit that other people probably give you, but you were part of the team that captured one of the worst terrorists in history. So that's a big deal. But if you're looking back on your journey in, let's just, in the military, what is a piece of advice you would give a younger version of yourself just in general with the lens you see your time in the military through, the what you should maybe, here's a heads up on. What would you wish somebody could have given you a heads up on just about that life, that whole journey in general? So there's a lot of things, but when I joined the army, it's such a rank structure, Mm -hmm. right? Generals all the way down to privates Mm -hmm. and the respect is built on the rank, which it should be. But along with that rank, you have, it's just sort of this awe of, oh my goodness, they're the sergeant and they're the first sergeant and they're the captain and the, the general. And then you have additional layers like, oh, they're infantry. Oh, they're special force. They're Delta force, right? You have all this skin and you wear it on your uniform, right? They wear that stuff. And it's this idea that they're better than you. And I know there are so many great service members out there who didn't see it that way. They said, they've been here before, but I can get there. Mm-hmm. I struggled 
believing I could get there. I just, I had this problem that said, they're better than you, Eric. And my advice to tell everybody join the military, nobody knows what they're doing. We're doing the best we can. And I don't care what rank they are. They don't know what's going on either. They're just doing the best they can or what they think is the best they can. But they're not better than you. We're going to learn from them. They've been here longer than you. Yeah. But you can't get held up by seeing somebody at a level and going, okay, A, whatever they say is right. Right. We must obey orders. But if we obey orders with blinders on, it removes that ability for creativity, which makes our military great, right? They even have yep. commander's intent. It's the idea that when you're given an order, just get the job done, even if you have to do it differently than what the plan was. It's that idea that a plan's about as good until you step onto the battlefield, right? That for me would be the advice. Don't get caught in off. A lot of people don't, but for me, I struggled going, oh, man, that's a full burden. Look, he's got a ranger tab and special forces. He must be perfect. And I'm not worthy. And that was something I always had to fight through. Yeah, well, where's the – I mean, so I'll ask you, just having kids that are starting to get into the workforce and, uh, you know, myself, what's the fine line there between respecting authority and maybe stepping outside the box and, and just maybe taking a stab at something? Because you said creativity – you know, is where ingenuity comes from innovation. It's where we start to learn things we didn't know before. Where's the fine line for that young person that's trying to make their way right. And trying to make the footprint. I think it, it would be some level of social of, of EQ, right. Understanding how the communication is being delivered and if you disagree with something, how do I respond in a way where I can question something, question an idea, but not be offensive, not be aggressive? Yeah. But the solution in my mind comes from the leaders down. Yeah. Right. With my children, I many times they don't listen to what I say at all. And then I know sometimes they I'm like, wow, they they're really following my guidance. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, what it seems from my experience it's my time with them when I'm not talking, when I'm listening to them, I'm hearing them out and I'm giving them a safe platform where they can explore, they can come up with ideas, they can try things, but I'm still there, still there for them. Mm -hmm. So when you say, what do we tell the young people to have that fine line? I don't think it's the young people's job. That's good. It's the leadership's job. It's us as parents' job, as older siblings, as mentors. If we're developing a young employee, yeah, we've got to be there, but not be totally in charge. We have to give up control to gain our influence to help them grow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they almost need to, we got to leave things as leaders. We got to leave things a little bit open-ended. We got to live, give a little bit of freedom to make decisions, make mistakes. And then that's where we come in and actually lead, you know, um, just tell them to stay inside the box and, and don't move from that. I don't think that takes a ton of leadership skill uh, to do that. So, yeah, I think we leave it open-ended and I don't even know why we got off on leadership, but I think it's important because we're talking about college and young people and talking about just the way you would have talked to yourself and what you would have given yourself as advice. And I think that's great advice because 
yeah, you had tunnel vision. And, and for, quite frankly, I would imagine never being in the military, but I can only imagine, man, you, you're just trying to keep your head down, stay out of trouble and stay alive. And especially when you're in a combat area, like you're just trying to do the right thing and not get yelled at. Right. And so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know that they are, are really going to question authority unless the leader, like you said, gives them sort of this open two-way dialogue of, Hey, you got freedom to tell me if you don't agree with this and why, and I'll tell you, do it anyway if it's going to save your life, one of those kind of things. So that's a little bit to your, do you have anything to add to that? Or did I, did I read that right? You read it right. Can I give you one thing I think is really yeah. cool? It has not, it's just something yep. that exists, right? Yep. The Delta force unit, they're, they're the best, right? They're the best of the best. They have a standing order. It's, it's kind of how they build their culture. And if, if an outsider, an interrogator or a cook or a mechanic or whoever goes into their presence, right? Their unit, mm. very few do. They have a standing order, and it basically says, when you're in here, if you see something we can do better, you better speak up. Think about that, John. Top of the food That chain. does not say, once you're here long enough, you've earned your stripes, then we'll hear from you. Oh, put it in the tip jar. We'll get you. No, that says, in here, guess what? We're the best, Yeah. but we're going to get, we're going to get better. First says, we, as good as we are. We know we can get better, but the only way we're going to get better, think about inclusiveness yep. and diversity, mm -hmm. right? Think about, mm -hmm. wait, we've pretty much figured this out, except we haven't, and we think you can help us. Hmm. Now think about when the outsiders come in, the empowerment that gives them. Right. I think it's the most amazing. It's the reason they have the best equipment, they have the best individuals, they have the best training, but their secret sauce is that culture. Yeah, because you didn't feel that way immediately, right? When you walked in that environment uh, over there, you didn't feel like your word really held any sort of, like, didn't you feel kind of like, eh, I don't, I don't really want to say much here. You know, I'm just kind of a, a guy, and these are the, like, this isn't the scout team. Like, these are the, this is the A team, right? So you kind of felt that way a little bit, didn't you, to some degree? I felt like the water boy on the Kansas City Chiefs. They didn't make me feel that way. Right. But I'm no idiot. I know who these dudes were. Right. I'm like, yeah. Right. Yeah. What was amazing is the reason I was with them is because I had been in the infantry and I had graduated ranger school and they went and there were any interrogators that have actually been in the infantry and graduated ranger school. So they were looking at me, not as they needed one of them. They don't wow. need help doing their job. Wow. They just wanted a, a, an interrogator who could at least understand how to walk the sidelines wow but until i was ready to get in the game wow i mean that's like you said that's that's pretty empowering man when they're like you know they're they're the top of the food chain and, and the fact that they're humble enough i guess and, and receptive enough to grow uh so they didn't get there by accident is what i'm hearing you say too like the, these guys are, are no joke so man uh, as we kind of probably put a bow on this talk man I, it's been awesome so far and i i, I always hear love hearing your perspective because you always relate things from your success in the military to this is some of these skill sets are translatable into real world your marriage your business i mean i think it's awesome the parallels you draw uh you know what would you say is a i ask everybody this question because i really want to know just because we all have you know, we've got the thumb click, we've got, the, we've got this voice from behind the keyboard or the phone, and we all want to, 
give our analysis of what the military is doing wrong or what they could do better or what, you know, we all think we know everything. What's a misconception that civilians have about service members in our military, about our military in general, but about you guys, when you're over there, what misconceptions do we have over here about what you're doing and what you stand for? So the negative, probably I'm going to give you the negative one. So this is not a good thing. There's this idea that anybody knows what the heck's going on in a war zone. Nobody knows what's going on. No, nobody. They just don't. If you're up high enough to create the plan, the war's fought on the ground. Right. And the messages don't get back. And if you're on the ground, you're not in the decision strategy process. And there's not, there's, there's not clear communication. Nobody knows what the mission is. I mean, John, I was with the Joint Special Operations Command. Our job was to take out bad guys, right? High value targets. You know what the rest of the military did? They had to win hearts and minds because there's not a battle. You're, you're not at D-Day and there's two forces. Yeah. So you're trying to acclimate and win the hearts and minds of the civilians. But you've got JSOC wanting to go after this bad guy who coincidentally, his uncle is the leader of a, shay, of a, of a tribe. And this side of the military is going, you can't take that kid out. His uncle is our best friend. We've got 3,000 people. And how do you make that decision, right? Usually JSOC wins and they're like, bad guys are worse than, and that's how you lose hearts and minds. I'm not blaming anyone. They have completely different missions. And then you have so much turnover. Though Nobody knows what's going on in a war zone. And if anybody says they do, they might be exaggerating their position. That's the bad thing. Yeah. The positive, these aren't a bunch of robots. We have a military of Americans mm -hmm. and they're problem solvers. And if you could see the level of responsibility that we put on these 18, 19, 20 year old young men and women, every single race, diversity, I, I watched a movie and I thought it was really interesting. I think, well, what was it called? Uh, Boys to no something. But this black dad told his son, black kid, he's like, don't join the military, son. It, no place for a black man. And I'm like, I don't agree with that. It's there, there's no group that I think embraces all cultures, genders. Now, because you have warriors, those traditionally have been men. So then that bleeds off of that as men leadership. Yeah. But you want to talk about this amazing group of problem solvers who are given responsibility at such a young age. It's fascinating. So I don't think we give enough credit for our military for that. Mm -hmm. We don't Nobody see knows what's going well, on. Well, we don't, we don't <laughs> see. <laughs> yeah, we don't. And that's the thing. We're there's there's certain buffers in place that we don't necessarily see over here, all that. And and I I I, I'm glad you said that because, man, that's what I want people to hear is, and that's the whole reason I do this. And I, I should probably just do this all year and make this whole podcast a tribute to service, you know, because 
it's more than just one month or two out of the year. And, and I think, I think it's important for people to understand, look, these are people and we know they have families and we know, you know, that loss hurts them just like it does us. And, but, but the level, like you said, the intensity of the level of responsibility and just sometimes zero room for failure uh, is just probably just mind boggling and I'll never be able to comprehend that. But uh, I'm glad you talked about that. It, it gives people good perspective. And uh, man, I, I want to give you one more question here and it's kind of a, it's a little weird. And by the way, that movie was called boys in the hood, just so you know, boys I, I just, God, it's like I, my I, favorite movies. I got it. Yeah, no. So Eric Maddox gets a phone call today. It's, the White House, you've hit the jackpot. You get to be president for a day. Eric Maddox is president for a day. What's one or two things that you, and there's no BS out there that you got to cut through to get, you say it, it's done, right? I, what are one or two things that you would implement now? Like what needs to be done and what does Eric Maddox do as president for a day? get out I your scroll of a thousand I, I, things I, 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 right no i privatize everything i believe in capitalism the military every department i'd make a budget that can be run for so little money and i believe in a capitalist country people were meant to use their brains they were meant to work. Yeah. They were meant to achieve. And I'm not saying it's cutthroat because there's so many people out there that need help. Yeah. Right. There are people who were not given the same opportunities. There were people that were born with disabilities. And now we have people who did contribute to the old system and they just can't do it anymore. But we need to cap, we need to privatize. I would everything because this country was built on leaders and yeah, they loved money. But in doing so, it, the, 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 the entrepreneurial spirit of creativity, mm -hmm. I, I hate any government spending, government programs. And I'm like, well, what about that? I privatize everything mm. and just let America's spirit run the ship. What's the downstream? What's the downstream look like to that? 10 years from now, if today you get to do that, what's the, what's the euphoria that we create from that? Like what's the downstream blessing as a country? The, the, the blessing. I don't know what the blessing is. I don't think we can handle it. I think we have too many people that rely on government guarantees, right? I was in the government. I was in the government for 20 years. I was in the military and I was in the defense intelligence agency. Mm. It's the same as a lot of companies. There's an 80, 20 rule going on. Yeah. There are 20% of the people doing 80% of the work and 80% are doing 20% of the work. Problem is if you have a private company, they have to make money. They have to make profits. People are held accountable. Mil government organizations are not held accountable to who Congress. Right. What's right. Congress doesn't care. Right. They just want the spending. I mean, you look, I believe we should have a fantastically hardcore dominant military. 
why are we building tanks and artillery pieces of the military we will never use again because the combat because the over encompassing global economy we're not going to those sort of wars space force i love it i love yeah. it yeah. right satellites and and cyber technology absolutely why are we still building these old things well they they provide jobs wow. it's not the government's job wow. to employ people wow so so for me it's like we all were not given the same opportunities. I was given more opportunities than people. I was raised by a fantastic family and they paid for me to go to college. Mm-hmm. I happen to be a white male and I get certain benefits that, that, that other people just did not get. So we have to take all that into account. But people want to work. They want to have a purpose mm-hmm. and they want to have a mission. They want to be included. And when we build that capitalist idea, I think that's how... We became a great country, and that's the way we're going to stay a great country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got my vote. That's a, that's a good way to put it, man. And uh, I like the the private. That's a great, and and I don't know if it's even possible. Maybe it is. Uh, we'll see. But those are great takes, man. Those that's good insight. I appreciate it, uh, man. Eric, I I know you wrote the book. How long has it been since you since that book released? 2008 2008 all right people i mission blacklist number one uh i read it like i don't know maybe the month it was out that's how long it's been a long time uh but it, I, I got through it and i'll be honest i i hadn't ever written writ, read a military book to that point and i did that in about two days and that's saying a lot for this guy so kudos to you. That was a great book. I was telling people they need to go read it. I mean, it was, it was absolutely amazing. Eric, where can we find you? If they, if people want to hire you to come speak to their company, man, where, where do we find you uh, to get some of your resources as well? I'm online. I'm LinkedIn, Eric Maddox. You can reach me at info at ericmaddox.com or you can just ask John for my phone number. Okay. <laughs> that yeah don't do that no uh and and uh creating influence right that was a, a podcast you now the name of your company is not that you're you're it's eric maddox right eric yeah maddox. it's just my initials I, yeah. I got real creative on that one john it's ebm enterprises there you yeah go. we we do keynotes and training on empathy-based listening yeah we teach so, people how to build trust through being better listeners yeah, and I will say as a caveat to, to just tie this up, I violated probably the first rule in your empathy-based listening protocol whenever you were talking about the movie. I'm thinking about what that was instead of thinking about what you were saying in that very moment. And I know that violates rule number one. How many times are we trying to think about what we're going to say versus what the other person's telling us, right? John, I'm going to interrupt you and just kind of tell you there are six categories of listening distractions. You just violated number six, one through six. Six is the most impactful. And that's thinking okay. about what we're going to say next. So you, you got your, what I did full yeah. disclosure, man. All right, guys. So to get the other five, you need to hit Eric up and uh, get him to come talk to your company. Eric, as always, man, it's been a pleasure. Great to see you, dude. You're you're awesome. You're doing awesome work and, and uh, can't wait to talk again, but uh, audience uh, hope you got something out of this because it was pretty, it was impactful. 
A lot of notes to be taken when I watch this back. Uh, Eric's story is absolutely remarkable, and we want to thank you for everything you did in the military, Eric. So with that, he's been Eric Maddox. We've been last in line. Be blessed. Supposed to